Welcome back to another episode of Tapasya Learning. Our guest today is Jaremdi. Now, Jaremdi's story is one of the most relevant I can think of under the current zeitgeist. Hailing from one of the most fascinating parts of the world, Nagaland, she talks about her work as an ethnomusicologist, a pianist, and a researcher, and the manner in which gender has played a role in the trajectory of her very unique story. As I always like to say, the conversation speaks for itself, so I'm going to try not to give too much away. So without much further ado, please welcome Charambi. Before we move on though, I do have an announcement to make. The Holistic Piano Academy has its first free mini course at. It's a free mini course. It's based on lectures I did recently at the KM Music Conservatory in Chennai, India. And it's called the Songwriter Mindset. And um, if you'd like to go sign up for this course, please go to holisticpianoacademy.com forward slash courses forward slash songwriter mindset. This episode is also brought to you by everynowheremusic.com or everynowheremusic.com, my artist website and plrights.com, which is a very specialized freelance writing service specifically geared for creative professionals and artists. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. And we're rolling. How have you been? I've been busy. I've just got a lot of things going on, but I think it's all good. That sounds good indeed. Uh, last time we met, the only time we met. Yeah. That's kind of how I often start off these podcasts, by a uh, walk down memory lane. Yeah. And in our case, it was um, during a studio session where you were kind enough to lend us your cinematographic skills. Oh my God. Like when I think about it, like <laughs> I watched that video about a month ago. Really? And I was like, oh, I have no, like, yeah, I watched it again. And I just thought, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But, you know, our friend, he invited me and he was like, bring your camera along and just take a few shots. And I said, okay. <laughs> and he was like, can you take a few videos? And I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing, but here we go. And you were kind enough to use some of those. <laughs> No, you were kind enough to lend us your time and um, effort because the videos turned out pretty nice, actually. I was quite happy with what we eventually churned out. Our common friend uh, we're referring to, by the way, is uh, Vorn Kishore, who's a very um, interesting artist in his own right. Yes. Yeah, and um, I do remember, though, I, I was it was a, a bit of a chaotic session. Uh, it was. <laughs> we were dealing with very limited time in a very high-end... Uh -huh. Academic, albeit studio, which uh, needed a little time to get getting used to. Yeah. And you know the pace of London being the pace of London, I think. Uh, yeah. All things considered, it was uh, good fun. I, I look back upon those memories fondly. Yeah, I think that was my first time recording someone in the studio. I think that was the first time. Huh. What kind of work had you done earlier? I mean, I just used to take like. The photographs, I, I'd never really ventured into filming someone. Nice. So I think that was like my first time filming someone, like a, a recording session. So that was pretty great. I really enjoyed it. I was very nervous, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, um, you didn't seem very nervous. And in my experience, <laughs> um, photographers often have 
uh, more, uh, for lack of a better term, a more poetic approach to shooting video in my experience. I guess, I think it boils down to the pace at which they use their lens. Mm -hmm. I mean, video is a bunch of photographs lined up against each other, right? And yeah, then, true. Look at it like that, yeah. With photography, you're just kind of um, condensing all of it in one moment. And I feel like that headspace spills over to when photographers shoot video. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm rounding now. Um, <laughs> I'll get used to it. I do a lot of that, by the way. <laughs> Um, I, All right. I do remember, though, being fascinated by, uh, you, you know, the little bit of uh, your background. I got to find out about on the fringes randomly during that rather chaotic session. And yeah. um, I remember thinking how I'd like to dig deeper and uh, we never got a chance. And mm -hmm. uh, so this is me trying to make up for lost time. I hope I'll still be interesting. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you will be. I have no doubts whatsoever. Um, so tell us about um, a little bit about yourself, Jeremy. I mean, in, in your own words, how would you describe what you do? Um, it's, it's been a bit difficult this year because obviously COVID has just, you know, turned everyone's lives upside down. Of course. So... In 2020, after I returned home, obviously, I studied ethnomusicology at Goldsmiths, did my master's there. Right. But after I finished, then the world just kind of stopped. Oh, yeah, I remember. Nothing was happening. And between 2020 and I think 2021, like when things slowly started picking up, mm -hmm. I was very lost because I had not done research in such a long time. Mm. I was away from that world and there were so many things happen, happening in my personal life mm -hmm. that I had a bit of an identity crisis, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to the club. Yeah, because I was scrambling to find a job, but I was also like, I don't know if this is what I want to do, but I also need to be able to support myself financially, you know, moving back to the UK, having left my job back home, my family back home. It was, it was quite chaotic. So... It's only recently that I've slowly, again, like reclaimed my identity as an ethnomusicologist mm -hmm. because that is what I studied. I was like, okay, I am an ethnomusicologist. I have studied it. I have done my research and I have every right to claim that mm -hmm. <laughs> because for a long time I just felt like, no, I am not one. I just feel, felt like I didn't have the right to yeah. call myself that. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, so I'm slowly kind of accepting it. There are days when, like, when people ask me, like, you just ask me, like, tell me a bit about yourself. I was like, do I say I'm an ethnomusicologist yet? I mean, I still struggle with it. Yeah, intimately familiar. It's actually a very unfair question, you looking back. I mean, I threw it no, at you. No, no. No, it is. I mean, it's it's one of those social uh, you know, niceties people end up kind of utilizing, but um, very few mm -hmm. of us actually take a minute to think about how generic and random a question like that can be. Yeah, just, you know, sum yourself up in a sentence. Sure, no problem. Point being, I, I get that it's actually pretty tricky. You know, it's, it's actually not possible. You, we can't really sum up our lives in a sentence, can we? No, and also because I think I'm still kind of trying to figure out what it is that I really want to do. Mm -hmm. I'm still finding my place, trying, yeah, so... When people ask me what I do, I'm like, I don't know, quite know how to explain it. And I just go like, uh, I don't know who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, in my books, that speaks for uh, an artist or a musician or an ethnomusicologist or anyone, actually. Usually it'll be a reflection of depth. People who you know, want to take their time to figure out how best to describe what they do are, in my experience, are the ones who mm-hmm. lay a lot of importance on the depth of their work. And I'm guessing that's the case in yours. Yeah, I guess I'd never really thought about it that way. I just thought I am just a very confused person. <laughs> we all are. We all are. <laughs> that's true. But... Anyone who claims not to be is, you know, some someone I'd be skeptic about at this point. Um, <laughs> But for my listeners, I should probably at this point um, give them a little bit of an idea. You're, you, and please correct me if I'm wrong at any point, you stem from Nagaland, which is one of the most fascinating parts of the world, mm-hmm. which um, technically uh, belongs to the Indian Republic. Technically, uh, Technically, yeah. but has always been um, a controversial uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I met you, you were doing some really interesting research on the tribal music of your village please correct me if i'm wrong my my tribe yeah so like you said i i come from nagaland mm-hmm. uh, it, we have several tribes and i belong to the ao tribe which is spelled ao may i ask you how many tribes there are there are major tribes mm-hmm. so like we are the ao's are one of the major tribes like we're quite big Mm-hmm. I would say about 15 or 16 major tribes. So I, I belong to the Ao tribe. Um, how do we spell that? A-O. Our tribe. Beautiful. Yeah, the Ao Naga tribe. And we have our own dialect. Um, you know, a lot of the Naga tribes, even though we speak our own dialects, some of the cultures, the traditions we share, like it's quite similar. Mm-hmm. If I to talk about my research, like growing up, I wasn't really exposed to our folk music. I had, I didn't, I, I wasn't really interested. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with it. My parents weren't really interested. And because when Christianity was brought by the American missionaries, a lot of our songs, from what I found from my research, and when I spoke to these older folk musicians and oral historians, we were told because we were animists in the past, we used to worship nature. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the songs were associated with that. Not all, but a lot of it. And we were told by these Christian missionaries, a lot of them were American Baptist missionaries. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors were told, oh, these are sinful. You shouldn't be singing these songs anymore. Right. So we did lose a lot in the process. I can imagine. But we have very little left. And what little is left, I'm, I'm trying to preserve it. But because of that, I feel like it wasn't really encouraged, all mm-hmm. these songs. And so even growing up, my parents never really had it interest so I was <clears throat> yeah I wasn't really exposed to it like I said then I remember one time we were in my dad's village for some kind of jubilee or some kind of celebration over the Christmas period mm-hmm. and I saw so one of the groups presented this cultural dance mm-hmm. and it was this really rhythmic um dance with some singing over it and I was fascinated I was like oh my god I never realized how interesting our own culture is Mm. and I think that's I must have been around like 12 or 13 that was gonna be my next question (laughs) yeah Yeah. and then I just thought oh my god this is really interesting but because ours is also an oral tradition Mm -hmm. I wasn't really able to find that many like written materials 
Mm. And then um, I never really did anything about it because I wasn't aware of ethnomusicology as a, a field, a discipline. Mm-hmm. Because back home I was trained as a pianist, as a classical pianist, and that was all. The, that was all I knew. Gotcha. And it's only when I went to Bangor, North Wales, for my bachelor's that in the second year I was kind of trying to figure out: okay, do I do performance? Because you know I have terrible performance anxiety, and I was like, okay, what else mm-hmm. can I do? Mm-hmm. That's when my supervisor told me you can do musicology, and I was like, and anything that hit me, then I asked him can it be on any topic? And he was like, yes. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, this is my chance to actually delve into my own music and explore it and find out more about it. And that's that's how it started. Like 2015 is when I started. Amazing. There's so much to unpack there, so much I'm curious about. And a lot of it is actually kind of indirectly related to some of the research I'm doing currently. Um, to start off with, uh, yeah, I went back to college as well. I'm doing a master's in music at the UWL. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I thought I'd just use the um, the the pandemic and the manner in which uh, it's affected my tour plan to kind of uh, you know get back, uh, get my feet wet in academia again. Yeah. um, Since I've always had roots in London, I want to go for UK university after ten years in the German system because. Mm. Um, anyway, to start off, it's really interesting that it took you, uh, or it, I'm guessing it takes the average native in Nagaland, it could take up to 12 years for them to realize um, <clears throat> or connect to the native culture. So I'm guessing that's how um, diverse the environment can be. Uh, I'm guessing, I mean, actually, I shouldn't be guessing. Um, what kind of music were you growing up Um on before, uh, before you discover that was it American <laughs> culture or Spice Girls gotcha. Westlife yeah. yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can relate it's also interesting seeing most people know about colonialism in India or in South Asia as uh, only mm-hmm. British or you know maybe Portuguese or French um, whatever. Yeah. I had no idea about this American angle this is news for me yeah I think when cable first came to Nagaland it was just this explosion of like American culture. Mm, yeah, so I, I think when, sometimes people ask me like, your accent is very interesting. They tell me because it sounds a bit American. And, and when I think about it, I'm like, it's probably the influence of American like sitcoms and things like that, where you pick up the accent. Mm, hard relate, hard relate. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I have a very hybrid accent myself. So I, I kind of, yeah. Americans think I speak with a British accent and Brits think I speak with an American accent. So, <laughs> Yes. So, it's so weird, man. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I don't know what uh, Indians think. Uh, uh, you know, that's a whole different can of worms. Mm. I'm also fascinated by the fact that you started off uh, playing the piano because my current body of work, uh, the research I'm doing, is mm-hmm. you know the piano and if uh, and it being a colonial hangover in India and its connotations. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm happy to share some uh, thoughts with regards to this eventually, but want to focus on your work first. So I'm interested in, in, in the piano education you'd had in uh, Nagaland yeah. in the beginning. How, how was, what was that like? So as far as I know, so it was brought by the American missionaries. Mm. So the piano was the first instrument we had. And I think 
it was mostly it was brought to the Angami tribe first. So, I mean, the piano has a really long history in Nagaland. I think it's one of it, it is the most advanced Western mm. instrument we have. Interesting. And it, it it's the most popular one. Everyone, really? almost anyone, like plays the piano. It has a lot. Like I don't know if you have heard of this, but my former piano teacher has started this music festival called Berlante festival hmm. so it's a three-day festival based in Kohima which is the capital of Nagaland and it's you've got participants from all over India and this year they expanded it a bit more because of um, you know Zoom and everything they were able to make it a bit more global mm-hmm. and they have workshops and master classes so it's spread over three days and in the end like you have different categories right. of yeah, so like junior, intermediate, advanced. Huh. So I think that just kind of shows how big of an influence the piano has in Nagaland. That's amazing. I should dig deeper so, into this. Yeah, so growing up, um, that was kind of, I, I saw my auntie playing the piano and then I just thought, let me just give it a go. And turns out I was pretty good at it. And my teachers encouraged me to study pursue music further well may i ask you i had a a couple of queries in with regards to what you just said yeah sure that that would help thank you well start off with i I had no idea that the piano was the most popular instrument in nagaland it just goes to show how segregated this part of the world has been from Mm -hmm. uh, the republic it's has been made to be a part of yeah um and I'm curious, like part of the conundrum I'm faced with uh, when mm-hmm. doing the research mm-hmm. I am currently, I'm currently in into doing research on this. Yes, is uh, the very backdated pedagogy that's used in teaching piano. It's like people are taught piano as a foreign language. You know, it's like um, mm-hmm. you start off with uh, I don't know a Russian repertoire or a, mm. or a German repertoire mm-hmm. at the bank. So it's basically playing piano is synonymous with playing Western classical music as opposed to playing piano. Yes, that is very true. Which yeah. is a, a different space. I worked uh, almost two decades with the German government as a piano tutor, but we started mm-hmm. off, you know, if a student wanted to learn jazz, we started off from a very different fundamental perspective in the first place. Right, right. And so I was wondering, mm. how have your experiences been uh, as a child growing up in Nagaland? pretty much the same for me as well mm. it's very much a focus on western classical music right and i think it also has to do with the fact that with our folk music because i don't think anyone's really written anything based on naga folk like piano repertoire mm. based on naga folk music i mean there yeah. might be some but there was no focus on that everything was just like western classical like bach the mm. most there is a bit of a mythological perspective that you know you can't play piano unless you've played all these pieces which might have been relevant in a different side guys but at this point it's really about you know that's really not true there are entire Mm -hmm. pianistic universes that have nothing to do with classical music yeah and i think when i was doing my research when i started collecting these. So uh, my research is mostly focused on the owl folk music at the moment because, like I said, I don't really know that much about my own music as well. Mm-hmm. So that's where I start from. But mm-hmm. 
as all the songs were passed down orally from one generation to the next, they were never really written down. Mm. So when I started writing them down, transcribing them, <clears throat> I was transcribing them in Western music format. Mm. And there were so many drawbacks to doing that because there were some vocal, um, what's the word, like techniques, which I really couldn't find. Yeah. And I was trying to describe it and I would use like a, a trill yeah. or something or yeah. a melisma that would come closest to describing what these folk singers are singing. And I was like, it is so limited. I can't, I, I just can't use this Western system. Hard relate, hard relate. The embellishment, I believe, is what you're referring to. Yes, it's just, I, I really struggled. Yeah, I can very well relate to that. And um, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, just, you know, some random thoughts here. I believe that is where a non-classical approach to music would be very helpful in future for uh, successes who uh, want mm. to add to similar research. Just to remember that notation, contrary to what you know, the world has been led to believe, notation mm-hmm. is just one method, yeah. one methodology to you know, share music. Sure. It's interesting how uh, you know we, when we release records for example we refer to you know the publishing group it just goes to show that notation used to be the earliest mp3s for lack of a better term mm. it was the only way you could record music for upcoming generations in cultural traditions where the tradition wasn't oral mm-hmm. and um, with the with recording becoming as easy as it is I think it opens up an entirely new set of possibilities for oral traditions to be archived definitely I I remembered um, in one of my modules for my masters I think it was contemporary musicology Mm -hmm. but in one session in one of our lectures we were discussing other methods of notation so not, not just like the western system different systems we can use because it doesn't work like for cultures like mine indigenous cultures mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. notate a system it becomes very difficult so i think for me that's one project that i might want to take up in the future possibly mm-hmm. looking at ways in which i can notate my people's music I'd be super curious. Do keep me up to date. Yeah, but let's see if I stay motivated enough to do that. Fingers crossed. It's interesting. You know what? I mean, um, this conundrum isn't as rare as many people think. I studied drums with a gentleman called Phil Maturano, mm-hmm. who was uh, one of the first drummers in the West right. to uh, start off notating authentic Latin American rhythms uh, for the drum kit. Okay. okay. And... Um, one of, and one of the first things he starts to talk about is, listen, this these this musical headspace cannot be notated. So you you got one of the skills you're gonna have to develop when you study with me is learning to literally mm-hmm. read between the lines. The notation here is a very basic skeleton you can use as a as a rough roadmap, but do not use it mm-hmm. as an orientation. It is not a substitute for digging into the sound, getting into the headspace, learning it in the manner it is taught, which is orally Mm. and experientially. So in jazz, that's always been a thing. Like jazz musicians don't read music to perform. They have lead sheets, they interpret. Yes. The traditional method of playing Mm -hmm. exactly what's notated, which, by the way, was not always what it was intended to be. Apparently Bach used to improvise all the time and nobody really knows who recorded 
uh, like basically the guy who you know notated his pieces is kind of the equivalent of a sound engineer today. So we are actually studying Bach's sound engineer rather than Bach. You know, one could argue. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be quoted on that. I'm saying this not as an mm-hmm. academician, but more as a consumer. Point being, um, yeah, this conundrum has been around for a couple of generations now. And then, honestly, I don't understand why people still are so hung up on notation, to be absolutely honest. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I started to realize that when I was doing my research as well. Yeah? Yeah, because there were just so many drawbacks, so many limitations. And I was like, why? Why am I following this? Why can't I just do my own thing yeah. and do something that fits my mu- people's music, you know? Indeed. That works Indeed. for us. How did your professors react to that? Were they cooperative? Um, so when I was in Wales, I think I was very timid. Mm. I was very, very timid. I never really spoke up. I mean, I, I came off as very friendly, but inside, when it really came to standing my ground and saying, no, I want to do this, I was very, very timid. And mm-hmm. I think it's only when I came to London that I slowly started speaking up my mind. But mm-hmm. even when I came to my research, I was very much like, I held myself back a lot, even when I didn't agree. I understand. With my lecturers, with my supervisors, because I felt, oh, they know better than me. But looking back, I'm like, this is my culture. I, I know it best. Mm-hmm. And I wish now I'd spoken up a bit more, but if I were to speak to them now and discuss my work, I would definitely be saying, no, I want to do this my way, not the way you want me to. I yeah. Would, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. I think that's very relevant information that needs to be heard. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in the past two years, I feel like I've grown a lot like mentally and intellectually just and like you mentioned it's kind of related to like the colonial hangover so I just feel this is my personal opinion I I have spoken to this but a couple of friends and they do agree with me when I say that when we grew up everything was our culture was kind of looked down upon like when when the American missionaries came they said oh your songs they're they're fit they're sinful so let's civilize you i kind of grew up with this sense of shame about our culture because i felt oh our culture is so backward it's not advanced Mm. and it's only now that i've started appreciating what i have so when i first came to the uk to study i was like oh i'm coming to the land of the white people they know better than me so i should keep quiet Mm -hmm. i'm here to learn but mm-hmm. over the years, over the past two years, I've realized, wait, this is my culture. I should take pride in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to reclaim that now. Rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I think that. Thanks for sharing that again. And that, that the can't have been very easy to share. I mean, I can relate to it intimately. Mm-hmm. It would be hypocritical of me to... Uh, to say I know exactly what you mean, because I know, it, because, uh, you know, it's, when it comes to a culture like yours, like Nagaland, yeah. um, so uh, I, I shouldn't try to uh, claim that, so I'll be careful saying that, but I'm intimately aware of this headspace where long story culture, white supremacist um, attitudes, mm-hmm. I've experienced it both ways, I've experienced it, um, needless to say, in Europe as well, yeah. Um, uh, 22 years in Central Europe uh, does 
put you uh, in confrontation with a lot of passive aggressive racism. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> but I've also <laughs> faced it um, in India as well. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, when I um, work here, when I'm trying to work here, it's uh, I've noticed the disparities between the manner in which um, academics are treated on the basis of their skin tone. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes. uh, I recently had a gentleman called um, Adam Gregg, who's the artistic director of the KM Conservatory in Chennai, yes. where I'm visiting faculty and artists in residence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we talked about this, about how uh, I mean, he talks openly about it too. The, you know, the privileges he kind of get yeah. has shoved down his throat with or without his uh, consent, and yeah. uh, the manner in which uh, you know South Asian lenses are still very, very hung up on this whole skin tone thing. I mean, mm. I'm guessing the caste system and that can of worms has something to do with this as well. Might have a part to play in it as well, yeah. I'm pretty damn sure it does. Yeah. Uh, again, part of my research. But um, I guess, you know, at the risk of rambling, uh, I'm going to try and summarize. I guess the the dichotomy is basically finding one safe space because um, it's it's not like South Asians get a lot of safe spaces in South Asia either. So it feels like being caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst racism I've faced is in India, not in the West, ironically. Well, I could say the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially coming from the northeast of India. Exactly. Uh, yeah, but uh, tell us a little more about the growth that's happened in the past two years, how do you make that happen? Well, I don't know how I made that happen, honestly. But I guess back home I've also seen, like, local artists. and Yeah, local artists really promoting mm-hmm. our local, uh, local, like, like our culture and tradition. And that has really helped me as well when I see people like doing research and promoting all our local crafts and stuff and music. Mm. That's really helped me. That's encouraged me. And so starting to see an interest in preserving our culture. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, And also me, when I look at the research that's been done on our music, I haven't really found so much written by our people, but a lot of it was written from the lens of, um, Europeans mm-hmm. who don't know I mean of course they, they're coming to do research but the thing is I was thinking to myself like I'm a Naga I speak the language I can contribute a lot I can speak to these people like when I go to the villages I'm speaking to them in a dialect mm-hmm. and I'm able to understand like the, the nuances and everything within the culture mm-hmm. and I just feel like as a researcher like that is kind of my duty I feel a responsibility to be as authentic as I can be while telling their stories, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Because I understand where they come from. I'm, I'm not looking at them from the lens of an outsider, of mm-hmm. someone who's coming from a different culture. Mm-hmm. Because of that, I've, I guess it's made me more passionate about what I do. Amazing. Yeah. Here's something I've always contemplated a lot on and, and keep doing so. Mm-hmm. What we're referring to are the nuances, right, of a specific culture that homegrown um, natives are the most privy to. So the one question I keep asking myself always is, is there a manner in which these nuances can be presented on a global platform without compromising their authenticity? 
Is it possible or is, is that a pipe dream? Hmm. I think, like, I haven't started it, but because this, like, what you just asked me is something I've been thinking about more seriously in the past few months. Mm-hmm. And I'm still grappling with that. I'm, I'm trying to, like, figure out how best I can do that or if I can do that. Yeah. It's, it's a question I think about a lot. Yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah. I, I find myself constantly questioning myself if the formatting I end up doing, even for a, a lot of the research I'm doing right now, is mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm telling myself that I'm, trying to put this out there for on a global format but is this where's the line between global and white centric mm-hmm. any thoughts on that is, is this something you've had any conclusions on like i said something i've been grab like even when i did my work i think after my masters because the masters was one year it was intense i mm-hmm. really didn't have time honestly like I did think of these questions, but because, you know, you had your deadlines. Sure, I hear you. I have to finish this essay. I'm just going to write whatever. Yeah. But after that, like, some, when I read back on my work now, I, I, I question some of the things I've written and some of the conclusions I drew. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, am I presenting this authentically? Is, am I, you know, like the question that you had? Mm-hmm. Um. And now when I look back on it, I'm like, I, th- I think I want to rewrite it. I don't think I did these people justice with this mm. <laughs> viewpoint that I had. Maybe yeah. it was me imposing my own personal opinions, you know. And I think it's great when as a researcher you're able to like kind of um, look back on your work and say, say like, okay, I think I've outgrown this point of view. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that is, you know, outgrown is the word because, you know, you're growing out of a phase of your life that nails it. Yeah. Well, I sincerely hope you do that. I sincerely hope you go ahead with that gut instinct you seem to be feeling right now. I'd be, I'd be one of the first to want to read that material, FYI. <laughs> that being said, um, unt- until you start writing, though, would you like to tell us a little more about the research you did? I know it's and it probably tricky to summarize all of it on a podcast, but um, um, tell us a little more about the research you did. So for my master's, I decided to focus on gender in Aonaga music tradition. Mm. And the reason I did that was because just around that time, there's um, even in Nagaland, like the feminism was being talked about a lot more, it was more out in the open. Wow. More. So I thought, why not do a gender study? Because I, there were books which would briefly touch on subjects, say, okay, this is how the Naga tradition is, it's more patriarchal, and women have these rights, they don't have these rights. But I'd never seen anything from a muse, musicological perspective mm-hmm. because our folk songs that we sung, um, the Aonaga folk songs, um, according to oral historians, they're like they were part of the conversation that our ancestors had. So a lot of these songs are some are like really really short, mm-hmm. but then they have a lot of history in them as well. You're able to kind of find out like the cultural circumstances during that time, like what the people believed, how they lived. So I mm-hmm. thought, why not study the song texts 
Amazing. And like kind of see, like, why not study the musical culture and then try and find out, like, you know, how women were treated in the past. What was mm. the status they had? And so for that, I spent um, about, like, over 10 days, I think, in this village, Ungma village, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. more strict. And the reason I picked that village was because they're very, very good at preserving traditions. They are, they heavily promoted it, which is great. And there were these women there, the group of women, uh, two women in particular, who were very well known in the village for being very good folk singers. They used to write songs as well. And I just thought it would be an interesting study to see how these women navigate their lives in a very patriarchal society. Amazing. And it was, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I learned so much about my own culture, about how all Naga women operate within our quite like patriarchal our society. Mm-hmm. So would you consider Naga societies patriarchal? Um, it is. It does favor the men. Mm-hmm. And I ask just to clarify why, because we keep hearing you know, on the fringes mm-hmm. um, random information about how Naga women have always been a very powerful type. Yeah. What's the real story behind all of this? So is, is that just some kind of stereotypical myth that's held up? Or is there actually some truth to it? Compared to a lot of other parts of India, mm-hmm. I would say people, uh, women in the Northeast have a lot more freedom. Mm-hmm. And it is true. Like, well, what you said, what, what you hear, mm-hmm. what women, mother women having more power, more presence. Mm-hmm. But having grown up within that culture, I have felt a lot of times very restricted because of my gender, not being able to speak out on certain things. And then you get told you're a woman, you should behave this way. Oh, right. So that happens. Yeah, it happens. And it's only now that I'm slowly shedding all of that because I was home for 26 years. I grew up at home, immersed in that culture. And I had all of these like very gendered notions (laughs) ingrained in me, like Mm -hmm. a woman. Timid. A woman should not get angry. A woman should not speak up when you know the man is speaking. Men make these decisions. Big political decisions are made by men. Women have no place. Wow. I grew up with that. Wow. So I'm curious. Was this just a neighborhood or a family or or institutions? Community. Gotcha. It's the entire community. Yeah. I, I. You just feel a lot of pressure being a woman to kind of live up to these ideals. So I think that also affected my personality because I was always like, I had to be in control all the time because as a woman, I can't be this way. Mm. I have to be perfect image. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm not saying we are oppressed. We're we're not. We, we, We do have a lot of freedom. And now things are changing a lot. I remember speaking to this, um, singer from back home about two weeks ago. I think she's 25. Mm-hmm. And I could just see, I was talking to her, like, how, how do you navigate as a female musician in a society that is, that lean, that it, that's more favorable towards men? And she was just saying, things are changing. You know, she doesn't feel as much as restricted. Mm-hmm. That's and good news. 
yeah, that's good news if it's moving towards that. But I also think sometimes, like, we are so, like, because we're, we have the thing of, of we are Nagas. We have to preserve our tradition, you know? Mm-hmm. We're very protective of that. So I feel like sometimes that is very detrimental to us women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People want to preserve, even though they don't fit anymore, even though you know, the world is moving ahead, like, that they're just not relevant. Mm. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it makes absolute sense. I'm just trying to listen. Because needless to say, I'm not qualified to comment on this in any manner. So I'm just, you know, trying to listen and digest what you're saying. I, I think it's, uh, I want to commend you for, you know, clarifying that, yeah, women may not be oppressed in Nagaland, but uh, that, you know, oppression is not a yardstick for equality, right? And um, I, I guess that's something a lot of people tend to forget. I, I hear some women, and again, I want to be careful saying this because I'm, you know, I'm not a woman. Yeah. But I do hear women talking about how they ought to be counting their blessings because they they're not oppressed. Mm. And it just makes me wonder, why would you think you would be oppressed in the first place? I mean, that... If that's your fundamental perspective on equality, Mm -hmm. it's just, I really hope you realize that you deserve better than that. But, you know, it's hard for me to say that. I end up mansplaining if I say that out loud. (laughs) No, no. Because most of my social orientation is very Central European and Mm -hmm. emancipated for lack of a better term. And it is very striking for me, you know, and it's strange observing these dynamics and navigating them at times. So point being, thank you for clarifying that, that the difference. I think you you ended up addressing exactly what's been bothering me for a while, that not being oppressed is not equality. No, no. I mean, pe- people look at Naga women and think, oh, so much quality, they're allowed to do what they want. But even me, like I've been in the UK since 2014. Mm-hmm. And when I first came here, I was just like, oh, my God, like, this is so different. I can do what I want. I can say what I want. But when I go back home, I become quite timid. Mm, yeah. In my parents' home, I, the communities, because it's such a close-knit community, everyone knows everyone. So you step out of line, you say something wrong, and it's like, oh, his daughter said this. Oh, God, yeah. It's oh, yeah. so different for me. So I'm. Yeah. I feel like I'm one person, a different person here in the UK. Mm. And when I go home, I'm this completely different person again. It's like there's two sides of me. Yeah, cultural schizophrenia. I believe is the yeah. term. I mean, um, I don't remember if I told you uh, not to hijack this conversation, but um i've been i've started spending longer spells in india since the covid hit since travel isn't as i've noticed yes <laughs> so it's not 3 weeks and in different countries it's you know uh, the weeks have converted into months now mm. and it's crazy this is uh, i mean i'm a dude but i cannot for the life of me understand why people keep asking about my dad or whose right. son i am and how they yeah. keep, oh, hi, I'm good friends with your dad. Like, uh, literally, two elderly gentlemen in the gym yeah. keep telling me about how they're good friends with my dad. Yeah. And, and recently, I, <laughs> I really blurted out, you know what, I really don't care. 
<laughs> I mean, why would yeah. you think a 42-year-old dude or a person for that matter gives a shit about whether you're friends with a dad or not? I mean, why, how is that a, a, a conversation opener? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so I do not want to think about how it would feel like if I were a woman because I, I can only imagine and I don't like what my mind conjures up. Yeah, it's it's not a very pleasant experience. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, a little how things have been since you've been back in the UK. How did that happen? Well, I moved here mostly because my husband is English. So I just, I guess it just made sense for me to move here. Mm-hmm. And I also, part part of the reason is I just feel a bit more free here. Yeah, as a, I get that. Yeah. It's just a lot more freedom. I don't feel as judged. Like back home, as much as I love home, Mm. I just, I'm under constant scrutiny. Wow. Like you said, the daughter of this, the daughter, you know, the granddaughter of this person. When I'm here, I'm me. I'm not someone's daughter. I'm not someone's granddaughter. I am me. I'm recognized for who I am. And. I get that. But yeah. the only downside is because my research is on Naga folk music mm-hmm. and all of that material, the people I want to speak to, they're back home. Mm-hmm. So that's been a difficult thing. But I'm hoping to maybe over the years go back and forth yeah, and just expand on the research that I've done because even though I've been doing this for about for, uh, since 2015, there's just so much to uncover. I can imagine. And uh, sadly, a lot of the people, they're quite old now. My informants, the people I want to speak to, mm-hmm. the people who know these old folk songs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I have enough time. And I think that's what makes me really anxious when it comes to my research. Mm. I, can, I can imagine that can be a lot to handle, actually. Yeah, I think I went off on a tangent there because you were asking me about my life in the UK. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. I, I feel like it's interconnected. It's um, uh, something I um, I grapple with and deal with quite a lot, you know. Um, how do I best summarize this? I guess um, building a life in a space where I feel like I can be me but still being connected to my ancestral side. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a journey. I'm very much in the thick of myself, uh, and uh, I'm nowhere close to deciphering yet. So mm-hmm. I can actually very well relate to that. But how's the research going at this point? Are you doing remote interviews or uh, work? Is how, how far does that get? So after I moved back here, like because I came on a fiance visa, I wasn't able to work for six months. Couldn't mm-hmm. even work volunteers. So that was. A very depressing time and mm. I was very frustrated then when I was finally able to work I think because I hadn't been working and I had moved I'd left my family I was just it was a lot of emotions going I on imagine homesickness and then frustration at not being able to work and I did lose interest in my research for a while I just mm-hmm. thought well, what am I doing here like you know my, my work is back home What's mm. going to my research? Didn't help that we were in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. 
but I was I was very hard on myself I was just like well what am I doing here and you know you go on Instagram and you see like oh god friends from home doing all these things and I was constantly comparing and thinking oh my god I'm doing nothing I studied ethnomusicology I am supposed to be researching like I just put so much of you should be doing this you should be doing that and that led me to like a very very deep depression oh yeah I'm so sorry to hear that and it's only past I think maybe um I think it was in November my friend a very good friend of mine um, he's from Chicago, but he lives in Spain now. Mm-hmm. He sent me a um, link for a conference in Sheffield. And he said, there's this folk music analysis conference. Why don't you apply? Mm-hmm. And then they had just extended the deadline. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and this was over the Christmas period when it's like, you know, family visiting. And and in two weeks, I was like, okay, I'm just going to write whatever. and I'm going to send it. And I wasn't expecting anything. But when I did that, when I was writing the abstract, is when the passion started coming back. Awesome. And I really enjoyed it. I was like, this is the happiest I've been in a really long time. Awesome. Because this is work that I know. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't hear back from them for a while. And I thought, okay, that's it then. But at least I tried. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, they were like, oh, we've accepted your paper. Yeah. And I was like, that's crazy. And I guess it just kind of made me realize, hey, like, my work is important. You know, it is interesting, and I shouldn't be so hard on myself. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I, I can s- totally yeah. second that. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I mean, there are literally, I mean, Nagaland, well, the northeast of the Republic of India is just, so. you know, very few people have any clue what's going on there. I think it's imperative that, you know, academics and artists like you, I can tell you from my side that I, I am curious, I want to know more, and I wouldn't know where to look. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. You, you don't know where to start. Yeah. Like, even me, when I did my research, I was like, what do I start with? You know, exactly. like, how, how do I navigate this? Exactly. But... Yeah. So finding your work is extremely valuable. Yeah, I guess that was um, that was kind of maybe the validation I I needed after being after feeling so like I had nothing to contribute. That was when they sent me the email and said, "This is really interesting work, even though I've been away from it for like a year." Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of inspired me to get started on a few projects that I have in mind. Um, related to um, Naga folk music, mm-hmm. I have a few things that I'm slowly starting to work on. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm very, very excited for it. I ho- just hope I can keep this momentum going and not lose steam. Well, fingers crossed, and I'm pretty sure you will, because, um, I, I mean, you know, I also relate very intimately to that to those blocks, those lows, and then you start writing and you feel the passion coming back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like that kind of answers the question in itself, if the passion is something we feel when we want to start doing, it, it basically, it's, it's a sign that, okay, that is exactly what we ought to be doing. Yeah. yeah. I'm just sharing, not to patronize, you know. Just to, no, no. Okay. I mean, at that point, like, till like November of last year, I'd been applying to all these museums here mm. 
just to get experience, but mm-hmm. I was just not getting it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, is my work not relevant? But then I realized, you know, this is something I can actually do on my own. Mm. It's the work of my people. And I had a long discussion with my sister and she was like, you have got so much material. Why don't you just start something on your own? Amazing. And that's the motivation I needed. And yeah, just a few ideas here and there that I'm playing around with, hopefully in later in this year. There'll be something maybe. I'm not going to give anything away, but... <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Now I hear you. Yeah. When you're comfortable sharing your work, do keep me up to date. Yeah, will do. Will do. Um, you're, before we taper off, we are coming towards the end. This is a really enjoyable conversation, by the way, just FYI. Thanks for doing this. Uh, there is one topic I'd be super curious on, which is the dynamic between the Northeast and the Indian Republic. Now, I know this is a troublesome area to get into, and um, I'm not qualified to get into the politics of it. But I yeah. would be curious as, uh, as someone who's actually from Nagaland, mm-hmm. homegrown, mm-hmm. how, is you, how do you feel about being an Indian citizen? India generally as a republic, people tend to forget that it was never a culture, it was a political body, right? India is actually a republic and um, basically a, a subcontinent of multiple cultures thrown in together in one part. Yeah. And uh, the whole idea of identifying as Indian it's so tricky. It's, um... Yeah, I, I always tell people that, and I even tell my husband, I am a Naga first. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm an Indian second. I will always identify myself as a Naga, mm-hmm. and the Indian part comes there, it's like on the side. <laughs> yeah, it, it, what it really boils down to is paperwork. If, I mean, for me, I can speak for myself. Um, it's, um, and, again, at the risk of hijacking the conversation, um, I don't know if this is something you can relate to, but um, I didn't have a passport until I was 14 years old. Right. Because uh, back in the day, you could travel on the parents' passport. And for the first time when I needed one at 14, when I got an Indian one-handed, it's like, hang on, what's going on here? Why is this the passport I'm carrying? And for the first time, the reality of it struck me, the fact that I would need a visa to go to the UK, which for oh. me was home, you know, having a piece of paper in order to go to the city which I considered home. That was the first time I was confronted with the realities of the political Mm. side to it all. The huge gap between cultural narratives and political narratives, you know, uh, identities uh, and the multiple levels on which they can exist. So so my Mm. ancestry is one and my citizenship another. I'm wondering if that's something you can relate to. Um, I think now more and more, especially because of what's happening back home right now, which I don't even want to speak about. Mm-hmm. I think I feel even more of a disconnect. Mm-hmm. I can relate, yeah. Yeah, and especially after what happened in December, the Oting incident and the lack of apathy and just from the non-Nagas, like people just not caring. Mm-hmm. And people not understanding the situation and criticizing us instead of standing with us. I think that just made me feel, it made me feel like we weren't considered. I just find myself disconnecting even more than ever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, hashtag connection. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's, I think it's a very painful experience when your connection to your so-called country is something that's a huge question mark. It's a painful experience. Yeah, when I think about it, it's, I, I feel really sad. 
and because I don't want to feel this way about country born in, but it's, I just don't feel that connection anymore, you know? I can relate. Um, what I'd be curious is, you know, politics aside, because that, at the end of the day, it's kind of out of our control, especially in a subcontinent as huge as India. Mm -hmm. But on a day-to-day -day basis, with um, how has your interaction with mainland Indians been? And is that something uh, you'd like to talk about? Are you comfortable talking about that? Um, I think it's mainly, I mean, it is positive most of the time. I'm glad. Um, yes, we do get a lot for I mean, especially when uh, COVID happened, I know a lot of my Northeastern counterparts who, who were living in mm -hmm. different cities in India, they faced a lot of racism. They were called, you know, they, they would say, oh, you, you're Chinese, you brought COVID. Oh my God. And that was disgusting. That was really disgusting. Yeah. yeah, and also, like, as moronic as it gets, especially considering we actually do have an Indian Chinese population in India. Yeah, uh, that was, but my interactions have mostly been positive, especially in London, I would say. Mm -hmm. When I went mm -hmm. to Wales, I was quite lost culturally, if I'm being mm. honest, because the Indian community, the student community, like, they were nice to me, a lot of them, but with mm -hmm. a lot of them, I just felt like they were very confused about me. Mm. And... I looked, a lot of people thought I was Chinese, but obviously I'm mm -hmm. Chinese. And mm -hmm. I didn't really feel like 100% accepted by the Indian community. So I felt very much like I was in the middle and I, like I didn't fit in. Mm. And that really yeah. affected my confidence when I was there. Uh, when I came to London, I just found the Indian community like at Goldsmiths a lot more accommodating. They were very, very nice. Um, I'm very glad to hear. Yeah, that's where I met Varun. So Varun, mm -hmm. if you're listening, <laughs> thank you. Shout out to Varun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's uh, so much to unpack there. It could be an episode on its own. And I know this <laughs> is tricky ground to navigate on the record, so I will, I will leave it at that. But um, is there, uh, before we taper off completely, uh, are there any thoughts you'd like to share with our audience with regards to your work? with regards to the manner in which things have been uh, in the, uh, for your community, for your culture, uh, any, anything, any, any, anything you feel appropriate to put out there? Oh, God. Um... No pressure. I'm just <laughs> making sure we've, yeah, we've yeah. Um, you know, had your story out there to the best of our abilities. Oh, gosh. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. To be part it's no of, pleasure is all mine. Because I have been following like the other guests that you had on your show. And mm -hmm. oh, these are really interesting people. And then when you reached out to me, I was like, what? Why is he interested in me? I'm not, I'm not even interesting. But thank, thank you so much for that. because it's No, you're most welcome. I mean, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of having some uh, iconic uh, people on the podcast as well. But I've been very clear about the beginning, you know, the, you know, the whole point of starting this podcast was to curate from a space of authenticity and not name dropping. I'm not in the name dropping space yeah, yeah. and I do not want to be part of another podcast that thrives on big names because uh, mm. I want to, that's actually that whole paradigm, this whole hierarchical BS. That's exactly what I'm looking to break. And, um, I've, and I think, uh, you know, having 
had the privilege of interacting with so-called big names during the course of my career mm-hmm. and seeing that there there are these there's this specific kind of oblivion between them and this us them thing that needs to be broken so mm-hmm. um it was this was never about big names this was always about people whose stories I want to get out there and so yeah i mean the honor and pleasure is all mine yeah i mean thank thank you so much for that honestly like it was the biggest surprise of my life when you sent me that message i was just like wow it it was an honor so thank you so much um I appreciate that in terms of what i want to tell people i'm not very good with these things because I like You don't have to be. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to be quite private. So having these conversations makes me very nervous. No, I respect that and I, yeah, I all the more reason for, <laughs> for me to say thank you again for you to come oh, on. Oh no, but share your story. I also came, so I was very nervous and it took me about a week to kind of decide and I, I had conversations with my husband and with my friend. The one mm-hmm. in Spain and I was like I I don't know, like I was like I'm so scared to put my work out there. Mm-hmm. They're like just just do it. Get it out there. Get yeah. your story out there. You have to do it. This is an opportunity. And I was almost about to say no, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to send him a message before I change my mind. And I'm going to say mm-hmm. yes. I'm going to book it right now. Awesome. Um so thank you so much for taking the time to listen mm-hmm. to my story, my research for being interested in Nagaland because I just it's it's rare that I find people who would want to talk about my work mm-hmm. um i think that that's silly of the people who are not interested but <laughs> but uh no i mean uh, I, i mean i guess i do have a slight advantage in that I'm, i had the chance to meet you in person so I, i i knew what was going on and i knew that there was you know a very specific uh, quality and depth to what you were working on so yeah. I, i did have that advantage it's um and this was before covid hit Uh, but um yeah i also know uh, from personal experiences that, you know it's it's not easy to talk about our work on on the record at times i mean you listen to me talk now but uh, you know I, i could barely get a word out 10 years back on the record you know that's that's the reason i played music because mm-hmm. i just uh, i hated talking i hated talking that's like you know um, i've even gone on the record saying this you know music let me shut up and make a point still make a point you know <laughs> so for me to do this <laughs> It was, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, honestly, it was something my therapist even suggested, uh, and it, it, you know, and was, uh, and I needed her support as well to kind of make this happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, this is a healing experience, and that's, I guess, that's what it really boils down to. Uh, yeah. This whole thing that you know, using it as some form of medicine for all of us to kind of use at the risk of sounding somewhat dramatic. So I'm <laughs> totally with you. I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, even especially as someone who has quite bad anxiety for me mm-hmm. this is also me going like okay i can do this uh you know <laughs> even though i'm yeah. anxious i'm gonna go ahead and do this and i know that once i'm done with this when, once we finish talking and i can finally like breathe i'll be like oh my god i, I did a brave thing today absolutely and I, i i can confirm that that's important for me for it's important for me to remind myself yes of that and help me with my anxiety yes um i'm very very glad 
I could be part of that experience. Yeah, so thank you. And I promise you, you'll be quite pleasantly shocked when you listen back to this conversation because at no point do you sound like someone who's grappling with anxiety. <laughs> your, uh, the articulation and uh, the manner in which you share your thoughts. I would have never guessed you'd be grappling with anxiety, but that, that, that's the whole point. Oh, my heart is right now. If you could feel my heart right yeah. now, it is, really? it is racing. Yeah, intimately familiar. But uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm also like sitting in a position where I'm most comfortable. I'm sat on the floor. Oh, awesome. And that's where I feel most comfortable. Yeah. When I'm comfy, that's, I, I get on the floor. I'm like, I need to be here to, to literally ground myself. <laughs> to feel safe. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I get that. I actually the, yeah, use that as a practice too. Like we tend to underestimate the relevance our relationship with the ground actually plays in our mental health. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's one of the biggest reasons I practice jujitsu because you know it's all about uh, the physical aspect and your right. relationship right. with the ground. So I totally get that. I and I completely uh, recommend it for anyone <laughs> who's looking. For a practice, just, you know, sit your ass down on the ground. Yeah. You'd be surprised at how much it'll do for your confidence. It just feels amazing. I, I feel comfortable. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, parting thoughts. Anything you'd like to share for our listeners out there generally who might be curious about your roots, about where you come from? Like you said, I am from Nagaland. And for people who don't know, please look up where Nagaland is. It's in the northeast of India. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country, of the world, and you will find some of the nicest, friendliest, most generous people. Completely agree, by the way. I haven't been, but I've <laughs> met a lot of people and gotten along immediately. You met one of my friends in a KM conservatory? Yes, I did, I did. I hadn't realized you were friends. Yeah, I mean, there's so much about Noglin to uncover, and I don't think I did justice in this podcast because of how, like, my emotions were all over the place but if you can like look up Nagalin, look up our music um I do so I'm an ethnomusicologist and I post some of my work on Instagram mm-hmm. times just so people just to uh, create awareness and to also promote my culture mm-hmm. so if you're interested in that you can follow me on Instagram absolutely I might also have like a separate Instagram account from my folk music work, which might happen much later on. So I will keep you posted on that. Yes, please. Yeah. I've just had a great time today. So thank you so much. And to anyone who's listening, thanks for listening. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, honors all mine. Thanks again. And But yes, I will second you on our listeners listening in. Thank you as well. That's what makes this worth. Yeah. Thank you. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our shows so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out